A question comes up, how do we know that our faith is true? And the implication is, you know, looking out at all of the faiths out there, how do we know that Christianity is the one that we should be uh, lining up with? And, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways to approach that question. One way would just be to say, well, you know, if you look at the East versus the West, the East basically says that, that God is impersonal, that he's an idea or an ideal or or just something that, that doesn't really connect with us on a personal level. And then to look at the West, and in the West, really, there's, there's, there's uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, the big three, and, and uh, both Islam and, Judea- and Christianity uh, spring from Judaism. Uh, but, you know, the, the difference, of course, is that, that Christianity is a fulfillment of, of, uh, of the Old Testament, the Jewish uh, faith, and um, and, and Islam is, is really based on works, so it's really a matter of works versus grace. So then it really just comes down to whether or not you all think grace is, a, is, is something that the world needs. That's one way of approaching it, to be able to say, uh, look, here are the distinctions, and uh, you, know, you, you, uh, you see for yourself whether or not this makes sense. And this is the way that, that uh, a lot of times in uh, academic classes or, or, or philosophy or, or from a perspective of the Enlightenment, people would make distinctions between faith. But you know, sometimes questions aren't very good. The question itself is not very good. It has a premise that says that we as human beings are supposed to look at the landscape and then we are by our own reason supposed to decide what is it that, that makes the most sense. Jesus doesn't say to do that. He says, follow me. Those two words change the world. Jesus doesn't put himself up, nor, nor does he say to compare me to, to Buddha or Lao Tzu or, or, or Muhammad or, or, or uh, Confucius. In fact, uh, none of those other r- religious uh, r- religions or heads of religions, they, 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 don't, they don't point to themselves the way that Jesus says, follow me. They, they say, look at my teaching. Look at my teaching. So a better question, when somebody asks you, how do you know that your faith is true as opposed to the other faiths, maybe the, que- maybe the response is, the proper response is, well, I don't, I don't really know. I wouldn't necessarily compare them or put them on the same level. I would just say, you know, I, I would ask you a question. Is, is Jesus of Nazareth worth following? Is Jesus worth following? Not which is, is, is Christianity the, the truest, but is Jesus worth following? Because that's what Jesus says to to us is, is, is follow me. And I think what we're going to discover over the next four weeks as we look at these, these snapshots or these impressions that Jesus gives us about a life worth following, as we look at these impressions about a life worth following, we're going to see that Jesus is not only worth following, but, but if these aren't the impressions of God, than they ought to be. If this isn't what God is like, then it should be. I think what we're going to see is as we look at a life worth following, if you think of all the lives that have ever lived, what other name is, comes to mind as, as someone worth following? And what we're going to see is the answer is yes, Jesus is certainly worth following, not only because of he has a life worth following, but because of the impressions he gives us of God himself. 
Today we're going to look at this scene where Jesus is interacting with a captain in the army, a centurion in the Roman guard. A centurion, a man over a hundred men. Occupied territory. So you have Israel and you have the Hebrew people occupied by the Roman Empire. And here is our first impression. A centurion in Matthew chapter 8 who is being given an impression of authority. Authority. Now, isn't it true? Is it not true that the greatest chaos that has entered into your life, your deepest regrets, more often than not, come at your own hand? Is it not true that your errors in judgment, that your, your snap decisions, that your impulses... The things you've said, the things you've done, the things you've left unsaid, the things you've left undone, that this is introduced into your life as you look back, a deep sense of regret. That doesn't mean that, that, that other things don't bring chaos from the outside, but our deeper regrets are the things for which we feel a sense of responsibility. Where we have become sort of our own authority and we've made our own decisions, what, what the centurion is recognizing is the centurion recognizes in Jesus not only someone worth following, but, but someone under whose authority he would place himself. Someone who would find his life flourishing because he's listening to a voice outside of himself. To reach his greatest potential, the centurion, recognizes he needs a higher authority. From the Word of God, Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, as Jesus, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those, who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one else in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you, even as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Signal Mountain, where I lived before moving to Thomasville, Signal Mountain right next to Chattanooga, is a little hamlet community of about 8,000 on a mountain, on a plateau. It had one stoplight. You think, Thomasville's small. We lived in a fishbowl. Now, Chattanooga was a big town, like Tallahassee is a big town. Signal Mountain was much, much smaller than Thomasville, and so you really had to be on your best behavior. One time, uh, I was driving my car. Yeah, this, this does not end well. I was driving my car down to, towards that one traffic light where you know, you know, hundreds of people go by every day. And uh, most people knew what my car looked like, and they, they knew my car. And uh, a friendly neighborhood police officer pulled me over. And uh, I, the only place to pull over was in this very conspicuous parking lot. And uh, his, he was right behind me, and his lights were flashing. And, and his lights stayed flashing, and they stayed flashing, and they stayed flashing. And car after car after car was driving by, and I just, got, I just felt about an inch tall. He came up to the window, and he said, Did you know that your, your back uh, left light is out on your car? I said, no, sir, thank you. I, I will take care of that. Thank you very much. Well, that was the end of that. I didn't get a ticket or anything, but I did get a lot of feedback <laughs> for the next couple of weeks. Hey, I saw you uh, got pulled over, you know, time after time after time after time. Everybody, it seemed like everybody on Signal Mountain saw that I had gotten pulled over by a police officer. Sometimes in those moments we think, you know, this is really inconvenient having... These, uh, this level of accountability, having authority over us. And we do all kinds of things to rid ourselves of authority or to avoid it or to wire around authority. We often think, you know, we, we don't need that level of accountability. We, we, we can take it from here, thank you very much. And, and when there, in, in the times when we're dealing with the consequences of someone else's authority over us, we want to dismiss it. But again, is it not true that we are our own worst enemy? Our judgment. To reach greater, our greater potential, a lot of times what we do is we try to make life work for us apart from God. What Jesus is, is presenting to us, the picture he's presenting to us through this encounter with this centurion is a picture of the benefit of being under authority. Let me say that again. It's a picture of the benefit, the benefit of being under the right Authority. The benefit is that you can reach your greatest potential there. Jesus is concerned not, not so much about our success and failure, maybe more about our success, about succeeding at the wrong thing, 
about climbing the ladder of life and finding in the end that it's been leaning against the wrong building. But to be under authority, to be under the right authority, is to have a chance to rid your life of chaos and to reach your greatest potential. Why? Because under authority, we can deal with the following three enemies. If you want to reach your greatest potential, then you need some authority speaking outside and into your life to face down these three enemies. And the first is the flesh. It's the flesh, it's the world, and it's the evil one. First, the flesh. Under authority, we can achieve greater things, our greatest potential, by dealing with how it helps us deal with the flesh. Now, the flesh, you know, the flesh is a good thing, but in the scriptures, the word sarks, the word for flesh is sarks, and that Greek word represents, when it's used, it represents a selfish ambition. And although that word doesn't appear in this passage, you can see in the centurion, uh, some in the backgrounds, this measure of a level of awareness of his brokenness, his broken humanity. That's what flesh is about. I love it when, when uh, there are a couple of you in here who've said this to me, and it's always, it always encourages me when you're, 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 you're checking in with me and you're, you're wrestling with something and, and one of the things I've heard a couple of you do say this is, I don't know if my flesh is in this, but. And you raise this concern. It's usually a, about a relationship or something going on. It's just so encouraging to me to, to have somebody so self-aware or at least concerned about the influence of our flesh, of our brokenness. That's someone struggling for a greater potential, a greater authority. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again because it is my favorite confrontational uh, image of what it looks like to live life on our own terms. And it's the story of Dr. Laura Schlesinger, radio personality, who uh, was caught in some, a compromising situation. She was caught in, in a, a very compromising situation where, where, where there were s- some pictures of her that were circulated on the internet that were very compromising indeed. And when it was brought to her attention, what she said was this. She said, when I was young, I was my own moral authority. When I was young, I was my own moral authority. And then she said this. The inadequacy of that is painfully obvious today. I need to be reminded of that regularly. Students, I wish somebody had told me that story when I was a teenager, right? When I was young, I was my own moral authority. The inadequacy of that is painfully obvious today. Here's a centurion who knows, who sees Jesus and his faith is what Jesus calls out because he sees him for what he is, authority, a higher authority. 
Not just a miracle worker. You had the crowds who were coming after Jesus constantly for, for miracles. Here's a man who wants Jesus to perform a miracle, but he says something that shows that he's rec- he recognizes his brokenness of his flesh. And he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Jesus is offering to come into his, his house. He says, I'm not worthy of that. But just say the word. And Jesus is so impressed. As I've said before, (laughs) grace does not oppose the sinner. Grace opposes those who think they're not. Here's a man who recognizes his brokenness, recognizes his flesh. And he's appealing to a higher authority. He's appealing to Jesus. And because he's willing to give up his rights, because he's willing to give up his power, because he's willing to, to rid himself of himself, then he rids himself of the part of himself that is not good for himself in order to achieve something greater, greater potential. So the flesh, authority, helps us deal with the influence of the flesh. Authority outside of us, the right authority, helps us achieve greater potential in the face of the influence of the world. The world. And you say, well, Tim, God so loved the world, right? Yes, the cosmos. God so loved the world, the cosmos. God, God loved the, 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 the society of humanity, the pinnacle of creation that he created. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world. But the world is also used as an image of something that is like the collective nature of broken humanity. Did you follow what I'm saying? The world, unlike just individual influence of broken humanity, there is a collective influence that is broken, that's built in or baked in to our culture, baked in to our society, baked into our families, baked into our, 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 our government, and the way that we even set up and structure our life together. There's an influence that's bigger than the flesh that the scriptures usually refer to as the world. I'll give you an example of this, uh, this competing value system is what it is. There was an experiment at Princeton Seminary Princeton Seminary. Now, the seminary is separate from Princeton University. The seminary is the graduate school for, for divinity students, right? Bear that in mind with this example. So here was this, uh, this national group doing an experiment with seminary students. And they, got, they had a control group. And, you know, that means that, that there are some that, that they're really looking at. And, and and others that they're looking at in a different way. And so the one group, group A, they said, okay, we want you to go and speak on any subject, all right? Uh, it's the next building over, and we want you to just take, take five minutes and speak on any subject, um, and, uh, and, and it begins now. Uh, and so uh, it, it, your five minutes begin now. And, and, and so then they took another group, and they said, we want you to speak on uh, a lesson on the Good Samaritan." And so they had two different groups in two different rooms, and they're saying, all right, we want you to speak on any subject, and we want you to speak on the Good Samaritan. And, and what they didn't know is between the two buildings was somebody, an actor, who was lying there who needed help, <laughs> who needed a Good Samaritan. 
all right? And, and he's lying there and he's groaning, all right? And what they found, and this is kind of disheartening, is that the control group who had spent five minutes to prepare a lesson on the Good Samaritan was no more likely to stop to help the person in need than the other group. That even, even if they're focused on good deeds and, and the whole perspective of, of religion and good works, right? Even if they're focused on the very thing that, the very scenario that they were just about to be met with, even though they're going to, to speak on it as expert seminarians, right? They passed right on by the person in need. You see, that's hurry. That's somebody else's game plan. That's ordering life according to the influence of somebody else's sense of what's valuable, right? You, you've only got five minutes. You've got to get there. And see, we're, we're in a hurry. We are in a hurry, and we're often too busy for each other. And it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a perfect picture of the influence of the world. Here's a centurion. So here, here, here's where you see it in the passage. Here's a centurion who had arrived. He had status. He had power. He had position. He was an important guy. So much so that he had a servant, at least one. I mean, he, he was at, at the upper echelon of life, and he was powerful over that region because he was in charge of that region. In fact, in Luke, it shows the, this passage. It embellishes a little bit on this passage, or it, it shows more about this passage by, by giving some background. And part of the background is this centurion helped build the synagogue for this area, Capernaum where Jesus launched most of his, his early ministry. So this was an important man. This is somebody who had power. But it's also somebody who, like, like Bob Buford says in his book, Halftime, had, uh, he had climbed that ladder of success, and he realized it is leaning against the wrong building. There, is, there must be something higher, better, deeper than what I've achieved, because I'm there, and it doesn't seem to be all that significant. And here he sees in Jesus an authority that transcends what we usually think of as the really real. And he's saying there's something even deeper. There's something even more real. There's something even more important than the, the way that we measure life, the power and, uh, and the, 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 the structure of the captain or the, the, the occupying force of the Roman guard. There's something bigger, deeper that transcends the values of this world. And here is a centurion who recognizes it. And he's beginning to order his life at great risk to himself. He's beginning to order his life a little bit more according to that kingdom, to that world, to those values. Even taking the risk of Overseeing the project to build the synagogue for, for this area. And he's seeing that he's not going to reach his greater potential under his own authority, but under a greater, higher authority. So the flesh, the influence of the world, and finally the influence of evil itself. Being under authority helps us 
achieve our greater potential in the face of the influence of the evil one. I put it that way because when I say Satan or the devil, I think sometimes there's a certain percentage of us who just thinks, well, that's just some sort of fantasy. That's just some kind of, that's just some kind of fairy tale. I mean, is it, do you, Tim, do you really believe? I mean, you, you're kind of an educated guy. Um, you really believe in that? You believe in that stuff? Well, let me ask you this. When you're suffering, is it just abstract or is it personal? Is your suffering personal? And is your suffering when you're dealing with something that you know is bigger than the flesh and bigger than the world, when you're dealing with evil itself, is it personal? You bet it is. <laughs> of course it is. Six million Jews in, in World War II slaughtered. Was that just evil in the abstract? Or was it personal? I, we recently saw the movie The Darkest Hour, uh, a great depiction of, of Winston Churchill. And Churchill and, and this, this story that, that contrasts him with Neville Chamberlain. And Chamberlain was, uh, was the prime minister of, of England at the time. And, uh, and, and he was trying to placate Mussolini and Hitler. He was trying to enter into an agreement with, with two tyrants, one in Italy, Mussolini, and it was really the puppet of Hitler. Hitler had this, this bigger scheme. He was going to, to form a, an elite race, an Aryan race, and he was going to run over all of Europe, and he was going to exterminate the Jews. Now, in 1939, when, when, when the Germans invaded Poland for the very first time, September 1st, within six months, the West understood that Germany was exterminating Jews. This was not something that came out later. They knew it, but, but they'd understood in, 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 from, from earlier reports from World War I, there were certain things that were, that were exaggerated. And so they're, they're, some people give you know, the, the, the West and the powers over the armies um, and those governments a little bit of a break because of, of that. But the reports were, were credible. And they were persistent. You know, Edmund Burke uh, was, a, was a lord in, in, in uh, England. And, and he said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. And you know, that's what, that's what we see in Neville Chamberlain. But not only just doing nothing, but actually entering into a pact with the devil. Making a deal what Milton calls a, a, a Faustian bargain, right? Chamberlain wanted terms, wanted conditions for, for them not to be run over. Well, you don't, you don't enter into that kind of a deal. The only way to deal with evil is to eradicate it, is to beat it. And see what the centurion is recognizing. This centurion does not see his servant as just a thing. 
the way that most people saw human beings in a lesser station. At that time, a servant in your household was your property. But that centurion did not see it that way. That centurion recognized in his servant. He said, he says at the beginning of this, he's suffering terribly, and it's personal to him. He recognizes there's something wrong with this world, and it's bigger than me. It's too much for me in, in all of my power and all of my regalia and all of my connections. It's bigger than me. I cannot deal with this. And here's a man who had compassion and deep love for a person made in the image and nature of God. And so what he's beginning to see is through faith, he's realizing his potential. And what is that potential? What is that potential? That potential is leadership. It's leadership. You know, it, it's, it's tempting to, as, as Peter Drucker says, it's tempting just to, once you get to a certain station in life, just, just do things right. Or once we as a church, you know, we, we kind of get to a place where we're kind of comfortable, we're just going to do things right, right? Uh, or, or once you get to a place in your life where you realize, you know, if I just keep doing this, I'm going to be okay. This is going to be great. And we're just going to do things right. And it never occurs to us to stop and ask ourselves the question, in all of our doing things right, are we doing the right thing? And that's the difference between managing and leading. Here's a man who knows how to lead himself. He recognizes, the centurion recognizes his brokenness, the brokenness of his humanity. Here's a man who recognizes that in the face of the status quo of the world around him and the values that everybody values, that he's willing to take risks and stick his neck out and, and, and engage with Jesus and build a synagogue. Here's a man who's willing to stake his reputation on something bigger and deeper and higher under the authority and here's a man who recognizes that evil is deeply personal and he needs to stand up and draw upon the power and the authority of something bigger than he. You see, in the middle of all this, we get this incredible impression of Jesus who didn't come to conquer the world, but to conquer the soul and to save it. Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you for your authority in our lives and the order that it brings and the greater potential that we have in the midst of it. Father, would you so reorder our desires? Would you confront the places of influence in our life, whether it's our own flesh, whether it's the values of the world around us, whether it's evil himself, God, give us the courage and strength to order life under your authority.